On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Interesting variety on the front pages of the Sunday papers this morning. Uh, we will start with the Business Post. New climate rules could scupper future FDI projects. IDA Ireland and Enterprise Ireland must consider the carbon emissions of any proposed investment projects when making funding decisions from next year in a significant policy shift that could result in new investment opportunities being rejected by the state. Under a change of government strategy, the country's industrial agencies will be required to consider the environmental impact of new investments on a par with other factors such as the number of jobs that a project might create. The Business Post has established that the new evaluation model is already being used by some agencies on a pilot basis and will be formally incorporated into decision-making next year. Uh, IDA Ireland works with overseas firms looking to set up or expand into Ireland to attract business. Enterprise Ireland has a remit to support Indigenous firms expanding overseas. Asked about the new criteria, David Hegarty, who's the head of Enterprise Strategy at the Department of Enterprise, says that it wasn't, it's not certain uh, that future investments might be rejected, but it is possible. The type of FDI that we seek to attract will have to reflect where we want to get to, which is net zero by 2050 and substantial reductions in emissions uh, in the ind- industry sector between now and 2030, Hegarty says. So long and story short, that effectively you could have the state rejecting um, some inward investment because of the impact that it might have on, on climate emissions, which some people might say is the inevitable destination of where we're going anyway. Um, also on the front page of the Business Post, Doctors may reject the government's new consultant's contract if they are required to work on Saturdays, as currently proposed. The Cabinet has approved a new public-only consultant contract worth between 209 and 252000 to consultants for a 37-hour working week. It's a key pillar of Slauncher Care, but the contract still has to be voted on by the IMO and the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. The structure of working hours proposed under the contract is understood to be an outstanding issue for the doctors' groups. Some believe it could result in either rejection of the contract or a low uptake by experienced consultants because of the expectation that they would be on call uh, on Saturdays as well and also on the front page of the Business Post the rising number of property investors sitting on planning permissions for apartments could indicate a new trend of hoarding and speculative behaviour. A new report by the Irish Government Economic and Evaluation Service, which is an internal research agency within government, has raised concerns that although more than 75,000 planning permissions were granted between 2018 and 21, the number of apartments being built annually has only doubled to 5,000 in the same period. The government has claimed that legal challenges taken against larger housing projects are a major obstacle and a new piece of planning legislation is due to challenge that. But the new state report on uncommenced homes has suggested that despite some residential projects Projects been delayed or blocked by judicial reviews. There is a large stock of existing homes ready to be built that are unencumbered by legal challenges. Uh, more on that inside the paper. Uh, front page of the Sunday Times. Republicans from the North made Dowdall quit Sinn Féin. That is the headline of their front page story, which says that pressure is mounting on Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald to clarify the circumstances surrounding the departure of Jonathan Dowdall from her party, uh, whose resignation uh, preceded his exposure as a criminal. One source speaking on condition of anonymity has told John Mooney that Dowdle was visited by senior Republicans from Derry and Belfast who told him to quit the party. Dowdle subsequently allowed Sinn Féin to appoint his replacement to the city council position, although he campaigned for a rival candidate. It can also be revealed that the murder suspects Jared Hutch and MacDonald attended a function which Dowdle used to advance his political campaign, though MacDonald maintains that she never met Hutch at the event. Dowdle is due to take the stand at the Special Criminal Court tomorrow, where he'll testify against Hutch, the Dublin man who was charged with the murder of David Byrne in the Regency Hotel shooting in 2016. Dowdle agreed to testify after pleading guilty to a lesser charge of facilitating Byrne's murder. Hutch denies the charge. 
Mary Lou McDonald, of course, on this programme about a month ago said that she was unaware of any uh, criminal links to Jonathan Dowdle until after uh, he had departed from the party and resigned from City Council, something which appears now to be contested uh, by what John Mooney uh, may be reporting this morning. Uh, and also on the front page of the Sunday Times, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, puts the Northern Ireland Brexit Protocol Bill on ice until the new year after private talks with Brussels paved the way for a new deal by February. Uh, we shall see. Uh, front page of the Mail on Sunday this morning, the fugitive nephew of former billionaire industrialist Sean Quinn who faces arrest if he ever returns to the Republic now owns a Dublin company worth over a million euro Peter Quinn went on the run the paper says in the summer of 2012 rather than be jailed for contempt of court after he helped the Quinn family to move their 500 million euro global property portfolio beyond the reach of creditors in doing so he avoided the fate of his uncle and cousin Sean Quinn Jr who spent time in jail to purge their contempt uh, Peter Jr was made bankrupt in 2014 after the special liquidators for RBRC secured a judgement of 188 million dollars against him um, there is an outstanding warrant therefore for contempt of court against uh, Peter Dara Quinn um, who is thought never to have set foot in the jurisdiction but despite that he has built up a successful uh, commercial empire uh, with companies registered in Dublin Um, and finally for now and I've deliberately left this until last because this probably will be our jumping off point for today's papers uh, there's also by the way on the front page of the Sun Independent a dozen armed Gardaí who were denied interviews for roles as close protection government ministerial drivers have been awarded €10,000 each for not being awarded an interview Um, but the main story on the Sun Independent this morning has the headline Growing Unease over Varadkar on the Eve of Power. It says there's growing disquiet within Fine Gael over controversies engulfing party leader Leo Varadkar just six days before he's due to become Taoiseach again. Continuing unease at Mr Varadkar's decision to leak a confidential GP contract to a friend and now the emergence of a video of the Taunishes socialising in a Dublin nightclub have raised concerns about his political judgement. Ministers, TDs and senators who will all only speak on the condition of anonymity says that there are frustrations with Leo Varadkar's leadership and how he repeatedly seems to be a lightning rod for controversy. Central to the concerns of some who spoke was the emergence of a video last week of Mr Varadkar in Dublin city centre, which has been widely shared among the public. The video was viewed more than two million times before it was removed from TikTok. When asked about the video last week, Varadkar said it was a personal matter related to his private life and he did not want to comment on it. However, the video was widely discussed by his own party colleagues and there have been contrasting views among Fine Gael members over the effect of the video and the level of privacy that should be afforded to the future leader of the country when he is arguably in a public place. Um, that is a little taster uh, of what is written in that article and indeed a little taster of everything that's on the front pages of the papers this morning. I'm joined in studio uh, to discuss those in more detail by Tanya Ward, who's the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, and also by Kevin Callanan, who is the President of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions and the General Secretary of the Public Services Union Force. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, I want to start on, not necessarily on the Leo Varadkar video, but more on the broader um, topic of um, cabinet reshuffles and the like, because there's a lot of speculation within the papers about who's going where and the extent of it. But we, we might as well start with that piece on, on the front page of the Sunday Independent. And this idea that it may have been some some sense of political misjudgment by Leo Varadkar to be in a nightclub on a Saturday night and to be filmed kissing someone. I'm not sure how that is a political question, but maybe either of you, and I'll start with you, Tanya, maybe you might have a differing opinion to me. Well, I don't really think it's a political question, to be honest with you, because I think when it comes to politicians' private lives, unless it interferes with their ability to do the job, I don't think we should be discussing it. Uh, And I'll give you an example of that. You know, a prime example is Boris Johnson. And you might remember when uh, the global pandemic arose. Mm. 
big issue for uh, like we all knew it. it was all over the papers where Boris Johnson was he was in the middle of a divorce his older kids hated him so this is all being reported he was having money woes because Marina his, 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 his wife he was trying to divorce wouldn't sell the holiday home he'd overextends mm. himself with his current girlfriend she was pregnant um, uh, and he was complaining he had to pay for food in, 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 uh, mm. in, in number 10 um, and all that was all over the papers but the, the reality of that story was he wasn't actually attending the Cobra meetings he was completely distracted because of his personal messy life so, so there was doing his job so there was a political impact to the, that is personal it. This thing is it. Okay. This is absolutely but like when it comes to everyday stuff that's happening in a politician's life it has no bearing unless they are harming someone or unless it's actually interfering in their job mm. as a politician and unfortunately this generation of politicians are living in a, a time when everyone records everything you know everything yeah. is the fire you know in the local street everyone's out with the phone uh, I mean it's a, it's a gross violation of his privacy to be quite honest for it to be on the front page of, of, of the mm. Sunday in, Independent um, and for, for, for this younger generation of politicians coming through because let's be honest the older generation of politicians all the stuff that happened in their lives you know records it because we just didn't do it at that, at that mm. point in time so uh, that would be my feeling in relation to yeah, it Yeah because there's quite a few pieces in today's papers not not necessarily critical but there's a few different spreads and a few opinion pieces for example um Ada Shohanlan in the Sunday Independent and Aoife Moore and um, John Mooney in the Sunday Times um, both on the general topic of maybe why this wasn't covered more extensively at the time that only Fergal Blaney from the Irish uh, Daily Mirror was prepared to ask a question to Leo Varadkar but other than that all the other media outlets haven't gone anywhere near this and they're sort of speculating as to well why that wasn't or whether there might have been some newsworthiness to it evidently you aren't convinced that there was any News value to it? No, I don't. I, I'm honest. It's just it's just a way of making headlines. To be quite honest with you, I don't think there was any news value in relation to it. Um, and I think it's just, the reason why you're seeing these kind of articles is because there's a transition in power. Really, Leo is now becoming mm. a Taoiseach, and you'll see some people possibly not happy on the back benches. Yeah. You know, that so they so, get so if there wasn't a reshuffle coming in a week's time, if this was a video that had emerged a, a month ago or two months ago, rather than I, it being, I, I think someone in the media would possibly go after it. But I think what you're seeing is, I mean generally the media and generally the Irish people mm. are actually very fair when it comes to politicians' private lives in Ireland. And I think generally people would feel mm. it's unfair to put any attention on that. Um, Kevin Callan, uh, General Secretary of the Force of Trade Union, your thoughts on, on whether, first of all, it ought to have been, uh, whether it is actually, first of all, actually, we'll start with the opening question. Of, do you think actually it is a matter of, of news or that there's any news value or public interest? to this video or what's in it? Well, I think we have to be very clear that, you know, this was in his private life. The politicians are entitled to a private life. And I actually think the most despicable thing about the whole episode was the person who took the footage and posted it on social media. So I don't (laughs) have an awful lot in common in terms of uh, Leo Varadkar's politics, at least until now. Mm. But I would absolutely defend, and I think most of my colleagues who have spoken to during the week equally were, you know, absolutely appalled at the way in which this was Mm. uh, put out on on social media. Having said all that, I think the reality of it is, and I think this is picked up in one of the pieces, is that this may cause him a difficulty, particularly, I think, in sections of uh, Fine Gael. So there's no doubt that it has... uh, presented him with a problem that I think he will have to uh, grapple Mm. with. But from uh, my point of view, I think absolutely he is entitled to a private life and he's entitled, I think, as Tanya says, to expect that the vast majority of the Irish people will row in behind him to defend Mm. uh, that. So you don't think that there was any any real justification or any compulsion on the media to have uh, bothered to cover it? 
in the middle of the week. I, like I, I accept that this is a very kind of media centric discussion to have, but you know, I, I am a practicing member of the media, and uh, you know, I've been involved in some discussions over the course of the week as to whether there was any news value to this. And for the record, and I'm entirely speaking in my own capacity here. Um, first of all, when you couldn't identify for certain who it was that was the other party in the video, then I wasn't sure if it was entirely warranted because if you don't know the identity of the person, you don't know whether anything untoward is happening at all. You don't know whether the other person um, is publicly out with their sexuality and it's yeah. highly problematic mm. to, to be yeah. filming people without their consent in, in any environment, but particularly when it's in um, a gay club. But also, I just wasn't sure what was the the political impact of it. It would be diff- it, it was different, for example when Leo Varadkar was um, in the UK attending a music festival at a time when he was part of a government that was deciding that it was unsafe to hold festivals of that kind in Ireland. And it was legitimate questions as to, yeah. well, if it's not safe or not appropriate right now in Ireland, then why is it okay to participate in that same behaviour in the UK? That was a legitimate political question. Yeah. In this instance, there is no suggestion of hypocrisy or no, nothing that he's, it's not like he's preaching one thing and doing another. So I just no. didn't understand what was the value to it? But there are some, Tanya, who are arguing that maybe it was a sign of poor judgment even to allow himself to be in that position. And I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't think it's about poor judgment. I think if you think it's about poor judgment, I think you're from a different generation uh, that got away with an awful lot, to be quite honest with you. Um, it's in his personal life. You don't know what's going on in his personal life. It has had no bearing whatsoever on his ability to be Taoiseach. And I don't see it's a judgment issue. And I think you're seeing here a different view from a generational point of view. I mean, I'm, I'm only delighted that there was no one recording me when I was young, yeah. you know, and I'm sure everyone else is kind of secretly thinking the same thing. Uh, but, does, you know, I think there's real moral issues about someone doing this in, in a gay club as well. There's people there who mightn't be out yet, wants to talk to their families, that kind of stuff. Mm. That's the stuff that I think really gets to a lot of people as well about the real morality of this you know like politicians should absolutely be subjected and particularly the Taoiseach the mm. people leading the political parties to high level of public scrutiny and our media does a very good job on this but they got this wrong by yeah. I think by, by, by amplifying this in the media um, There is of course lots about um, the, the job that Leo Varadkar is going to take in, uh, in in a week's time when he's due to be reappointed as Taoiseach by the Dáil uh, next Saturday uh, we'll talk more about um, his legacy and enterprise because I know that Kevin, that's a matter of um, particular interest to yourself, given your um, your your day job and and the the issues that you'll have had uh, Leo Varadkar there. Um, there's a big piece today in the Business Post by Michael Brennan about whether Leo Varadkar has learned from political mistakes and whether he'll be a very different Taoiseach second time around to the first. Um, without going too much into it, because we'll talk about the Enterprise White Paper in a bit. Mm. Do, do you think that he's learned a lot? in his current brief uh, as Tanishta and as Minister for Enterprise that might serve him better second time around than first? Well, I think what Michael Brennan picks up on is, you know, uh, Leo Varadkar's own statement indeed at the Ardesh where he, you know, paid tribute to uh, Michal Martin and said himself that he had learned from his way of managing things. My sense is that that may actually be true, that I think uh, he has certainly spent his time in as Tanishta and Minister for Enterprise and Employment in a a different mode. Obviously, that has been hugely influenced by the experience of the pandemic and everything that went with that. So uh, I think that there certainly is uh, something happening within government at the moment where there is a bit of a a rethink. Um, Mm. I had the advantage of 
attending a meeting um, during the week of the Labour Employer Economic Forum, where chaired by the Taoiseach Tánaiste was present, as was uh, Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Greens, and Michael McGrath. It was coincided with uh, Pascal Donoghue's election or re-election or confirmation as uh, president of the Eurogroup. So mm. he wasn't present. He normally would be. And I detected in the exchange that um, there is a bit of uh, talk going on as to how the government, including Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach, will approach the next two years. Now, mm. clearly, you know, the next Saturday is also going to ring the bell in terms of, you know, the long run into the next general election. So yeah. how much of that is being influenced by by you know, all of that and the consideration that has been kind of uh, well discussed over the recent months about, you know, the performance of Sinn Féin yeah. in the polls. It's hard to say, but I do think that there is a, at least, uh, I hope I'm not kind of over optimistic on this, <laughs> but a new openness maybe to certainly working with uh, the social partners, employers, unions and government in a more collaborative way to solve some mm. of uh, the Well, You could problems. argue that now that that's more uh, urgently required than ever because if you're still looking at another year where you could have inflation of around 8 or 9%, it's in everyone's interests that there be a little bit more industrial harmony rather than dealing with the sort of scenes that we're seeing across the water right now where everyone is clamouring for some extra allowance and if everyone's not on the same page then you have you have the, a country slowing down the week before Christmas. Yeah, that, that's part of it but the truth of the matter is I don't think there's any, you know, cast iron really knowledge as to what way cost of living is going to play out over the course of the next year. I mean, an important uh, change in the budget was uh, the announcement by the Minister of fin- Finance that inflation next year was expected to average 7.1%. That was up from 3%. That mm. was a huge jump in what they were saying. On the other hand, we are now beginning to see international changes in China. Uh, well recorded during the week and we're also beginning to see some of the supply chain chain problems ease. So it's hard to say exactly at this stage what way kind of inflation cost of living will play out. Mm. But I suppose there is a a general um, alarm within government when they look across the water and see kind of what's happening there in terms of industrial action. And mm. I suppose from our point of view, we're looking and seeing, well, where is this all going to settle? Because there there isn't really any clear indication, I think, to any of us where where uh, settlements are going to uh, emerge from yeah. in these various disputes. Uh, just you mentioned China there, the, the thought crosses my mind, there hasn't been much remarked on this week, but actually the relaxation of some of the COVID rules in China might be a very good news economically, because if a lot of the inflation has been driven by supply chain shortages, which in turn are driven by China mm-hmm. being in deep freeze, the idea of China coming back and living with more active lives could be good news for all of us. Um, Kevin has just touched on a point there, Tanya, about how, uh, and this is something which is also reflected by John Lee today in his piece in the Mail on Sunday, that the coalition's dominant issue up till now has been the management of COVID. And from here on, it's going to be about the next election. Do, do you think there's a danger that a lot of everyday work might be somewhat stifled by everyone looking over their shoulder and wondering how this coalition can end up going to war with each other and against each other with the next election, whenever that is? Oh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, because the polls are showing, you know, a, a particular configuration. And if you look at the configuration, if you look at the numbers, you know, mm. one configuration is at Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. The other configuration is at Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin. It's going to be hard to pull. Yeah, And, and, and you know, you may, there's, there's, there's still two and a half years to go. You mm. may some, see significant changes in the, in the smaller parties as well. But there's no doubt that's all they're going to be looming. Now, at the centre of the news coverage today, I think one of the things that's coming through is the it seems to be at this point in time a good relationship between you know 
between Eamon Ryan, between Leo Radker and between Michal Martin. Mm. That's what it is saying. So that's why they've done as well as they have done to date. Um, and I suppose Leo Radker's coming in as Taoiseach. He's, you know, he's under pressure because Michal Martin's leaving with, you know, with a lot of public support now, actually, yeah. for his steady form of middle of the road governance. Uh, actually, people have respected that and, and have appreciated that. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I suppose one of the things working against Leo in the role that he's been in in, in enterprises, he's been travelling around the world trying to invite investment. It's a bit like that job, that, that foreign affairs job. So you're not in the media in the same way. So yeah. he, he again has to build up his own profile um, in the media. What I'm hoping, and just looking at some of the coverage, particularly from Michael Brennan in uh, the Business Post, I'm hoping that this changeover between Michal Martin and Leo, and of course it's not going to be very significant because there's no new programme for government being negotiated. Yeah. They agree yeah, that. It's really just a personnel yeah, change. Yeah, this is it. So he has a chance to bring in some some new things that he might want to do in the Department of Taoiseach. Of course, I've been lobbying him. And so one of the things <laughs> I'm looking for here, and I see it, okay, I on. see it. I was going to hang on to later in the hour actually to ask you what you wanted from from your new newly appointed ministers, including the yeah. the minister for children, yeah. who's likely yeah. to be staying exactly where he is. But go yeah. on anyway. But, but anyway, so it does say Radker is understood to have uh, uh, to have eliminating child poverty uh, and reducing lays and providing specific classes for children with special needs. So obviously we've been pushing them on the child poverty piece, and our big concern is there just aren't enough people mm. actually focused on ending child poverty in government at their day job. There might be one person in the Department yeah. of Social Protection, but you're not going to get you know a hundred thousand yeah. children out of poverty if you haven't even actually created the team in government that's mm. able to do it. So, so that's what I'm hoping he's going to do when when, when he comes into the yeah. role. Um, I do need to get to a break, but just given that Tanya's had a chance to, to uh, opine about it anyway, um, Kevin, what would you like, given that we we know there's going to be a new Minister for Enterprise speculation that it might be Simon Coveney because mm. Michal Martin could be going to foreign affairs and therefore Coveney will, will need a new home. Um, whether it is Simon Coveney or whoever else, what would you like to see from the new Minister for Enterprise? I think what we'd really like to see from the new government, uh, Gavin, rather than just the particular minister, is a a change of approach where, you know, there's a realisation that actually we need, you know, if we're going to solve the problems we have in housing, the health service and many others, climate action, that we're going to have to, you know, really up our game in terms of cross-governmental working. And I think actually something that uh, the leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald, was trying to get at and got a lot of stick for Uh, earlier in the year was, I think we need to liberate our senior civil servants to think bigger. A huge amount of them, I think, were kind of captured by the orthodoxy that prevailed around the whole lead up to the economic crash. Mm. And we need to, to kind of send a signal to the leaders in the public service to think bigger. You know, we're a wealthy country. We should be able to solve these problems, such yeah. as child poverty. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's an mm. abomination. So when you say a cross-governmental thing, do you mean like, for like, put some meat in the bones of that for me? What like, what does it look like? Is it something like the, when you have a climate action planning, you, you supposedly have all of government pulling in the same direction and there's a little bit less siloed thinking. Is it that kind of thing? Well, like I think in, in terms areas? of climate, one of the things that, you know, research that, Forza conducted, uh, published in, in February, actually coincided with the, the morning of the invasion um the Ukraine invasion, so oh, it didn't get a lot of coverage. Timing, yeah. Coverage was uh, a piece of work that the task produced for us, um, which kind of said, look, if we're serious about 
climate change. We've got to bring people with you. You've got to bring communities with you. How do you do that? Well, then you have to make meaningful the job opportunities that are going to be there, you know, as we transition into jobs. How do you do that? You have to make sure that within localities there are good education opportunities, that there are good care opportunities with good jobs for people, not just childcare, but elder care, all of these things together. And it's kind of creating, I suppose, an ob- a set of objectives mm. that government and social actors, including unions and employers, can work together on, I think, is is the way forward. And I'm not sure that this government has the capacity to do that, you know. And I think yeah. one of the things that, uh, you know, the most powerful uh, slogan in any election, I think, is vote for change. And I think what Sinn Féin will probably have on their side going into the next election is just not being one of the yeah. existing parties. So. Mm. That's what that's what I I suppose I wouldn't kind of try and put it down to one ministry, uh, Gavin. I think what we need is a kind of a a new freshness on the part of the whole government to tackle these. I know you're you're probably running short of break, but I think you're absolutely right. Because if you look at any of the key issues at the minute, there is a cross government, cross departmental issue, even housing, Mm. like 90 men left in a tent in Clare during this weather and they've been there for three months. I mean, how are we in, we're in this developed country with plenty of money and we left 90 men in a tent through these conditions Um, and that should never happen. Here's a really cerebral question that I didn't expect to ask in the teeth of an ad break. Is having government departments more harm than good because it just lends itself to that kind of side of thinking that in, in principle you're supposed to have people that are dedicated to a specific purpose and that they're not waylaid by other tasks but it kind of seems that the, the more you talk about it that the more you end up realising that these things need a harmonious approach and, and this kind of guidance this everyone pulling in the same direction across all of government and actually having individual departments and individual silos often is, is counterproductive when it comes to dealing with that I think it's how they're led Gavin it's how they're led you know, the departments are a function of government. You know, we're no different to any other country that has emerged from the kind of British parliamentary mm. and administration uh, system. So it's how they're led, both politically and administratively, I think, can make the difference. Obviously, there's a role for the Department of the Taoiseach and for the Taoiseach himself or herself in how you coordinate that. Uh, and in the, in the case of our current government for the three party leaders, but we need to do better. Okay, um, I do genuinely do need to take an ad break. There's lots of uh, texts and tweets coming in with people's thoughts on the newsworthiness or otherwise of the Leo Varadkar video. I'll read those for you when we're back after the break and more from Tanya and Kevin. Uh, some of those texts and tweets that I said I would read to you about um, the Leo Varadkar video. Uh, Pat and Cork says traditional media runs with the Varadkar nightclub story because they're a dead duck. This is their attempt to try and prove themselves still relative. Uh, says Pat and Cork. I, I, I presume he means relevant. Um, I presume. That, that doesn't really hold if the traditional media chose not to run it at all until one newspaper ran it on Thursday and none of the other papers have run it until this morning. I, I don't know if that's true. And we're only discussing it on this programme because we're discussing it dr- during a newspaper review slot and it's in the newspapers. So so there you are. Um, somebody else says, oh, they texted in before the show, but they said seven days since the TikTok video of the new leak prone Taoiseach and still the media are censoring it. Well, there you are now. And uh, some of the, yes, What what's new about the utter hypocrisy of news talk, says Sean. You were all perfectly happy to report on Sanna Marin, but not Leo. I wonder why. Sanna Marin, of course, is the uh, Prime Minister of Finland who uh, was involved in a viral video at a house party a few months ago. I think people might remember that there was there was two newsworthy angles to that. Firstly was how did the video enter the public domain? And the suggestion was it may have been some some 
Russian malfeasance that resulted in that video getting out. But secondly, because somebody in the background of the video was using a slang word which might have referred to cocaine. They were using the word for flower. Um, and that's what gave us some newsworthiness because it was suggested, therefore, that the Prime Minister of Finland was at a house party where drugs were being taken. She volunteered to take a drugs test. She passed the drugs test. The story went away. Uh, there were slightly different circumstances in that. Um, Tanya Ward and Kevin Connell are still with me to discuss what is in uh, the newspapers, which from now on is a TikTok fr- video free zone. Um, but it's not a Leo Varadkar free zone because he is writing on page 7 of the Business Post today about the government's new white paper on enterprise and this is something of Leo Varadkar trying to leave a blueprint for further um, state uh, commercial expansion uh, before he leaves the Department of Enterprise um, it begs the question Kevin Callan as to whether the government to your mind has appropriately factored in or given due credit to the role of the worker in making sure that the state is on a steady footing in enterprise from here on in Well we've seen and I've seen over the last couple of years you know some moves to introduce you know legislation which gives workers um, better rights. I think that has been, you know, mainly influenced by the COVID experience, such as, you know, sick uh, pay. That's clearly something that emerged out of COVID. I think we were very disappointed uh, earlier in the year when the right to request remote working bill was published because uh, not just the trade union movement, but I think people generally saw it as it was a right to reject remote uh, working. That's now been picked up in the legislation published the other day. I'm not sure that we can say yet that it is a uh, big improvement in in relation to that. In Leo Varadkar's piece in the Business Post, he's talking about enterprise and, you know, the uh, arrangements that Mm. he believes will be in place to support enterprise in the period ahead. Again, I'm not sure that we're really getting beyond... um, you know, the status quo. What we need, I think, uh, in the country is not to replace FDI. FDI has been hugely important, but we need to, you know, come up with a fresh approach to supporting indigenous enterprise in addition to that. And I thought, actually, uh, Fintan O'Toole in yesterday's Irish Times Mm. actually captured a lot of what I and other trade union uh, leaders have been saying as what's required um, in the country where we need to. Well, well, I think his thesis was basically, you know, over the last 60 years, there's been one big idea in the country, which is FDI. And we actually now need to think in terms of, you know, we're a wealthy country. How do we make this a great country in which to work and in which to live? And that means fixing a lot of the problems that we talk about in programmes like this, but we've been talking for years without seeing any real Mm. uh, progress. And I think that's when I spoke earlier about the, you know, the need for a freshness on the part of government. I think that's really what we need to to, to focus in on. And I'm not sure that when I when I kind of finished reading um, the Tarnished's piece, whether mm. or not, you know, I would have had the confidence that we were on that journey or not. Yeah, because um, I've had a, now, I haven't read every single uh, dot and, and tittle on the whole thing, but um, it strikes me that there's only two very passing, very fleeting references to Labour. Firstly, in the second or third paragraph where he recognises that um, he knows it's been a tough time for people working in tech companies. Uh, his office is in close contact with the companies involved. And then a little further down, he says that he wants Ireland to be a place that has a job for everyone who wants one, work that pays more but greater flexibility and better terms and conditions. And that's literally the only mention at all of the people who are actually going to be doing the jobs in mm. these commercial uh, com- businesses, these commercial enterprises, which are going to be the spine of Ireland's uh, economic future. 
Uh, and even, for example, there's there's seven or eight bit, uh, bullet points about the uh, priorities outlined in this white paper. And there isn't any mention of the role of labour or making sure of, uh, you know, copper fastening workers' rights or their right to remote working or their right not to remote work. It kind of seems like the whole thing has been built without any kind of a, even more than a token acknowledgement of the people who are going to be doing the work to make it happen. Well, certainly reading the article, that's the conclusion you would come to. But I would have to point out, uh, especially as I was one of the three trade union members of the high level group that looked at industrial relations and collective bargaining, that mm. we've reported and made a number of very important recommendations to government, which I think they intend to take up and yeah. to legislate for. So, uh, you know, it would only be, I think, reasonable that I'd provide that bit of balance. But, but in terms of a vision for the country, I think the kind of uh, way in which we need to go, which is, you know, a deeper form of social dialogue, effective uh, social uh, protections, quality public services, that kind of vision for the country is what is not just going to help to uh, retain our very uh, well-educated school leavers and graduates Mm. in the country, educated by and large by the tax, you know, at the, at the expense of the taxpayer, yeah. but also, you know, to ensure that the people that we're, attra- you know, attracting into the country, you know, want to stay here, want to have good careers and want to pay taxes and, and support mm. uh, public services as well. So I think it's that kind of vision that yeah. we would like to see uh, emerge. Uh, it's certainly not evident from the piece in the Business Post today, but you know, there are other things happening within that department. Well, there are, and it's only a synopsis of the white paper as well, so it's it's not the full chapter and verse in the whole thing. Uh, you mentioned those who we train uh, at public expense to, to man the public services. One area in which that's particularly prescient is um, in education and the shortage of teachers uh, that there are, where, again, teachers are, are trained um, often at public expense and then find themselves unable to make a life in Ireland and, and to move on. And Tanya, um, I know this will be maybe closer to your, your own day job and your area of concern, that there are calls to establish a supply task force uh, for a teacher sharing scheme uh, because the existing teacher, scare, uh, teacher sharing mechanisms aren't quite working out. That's in today's Sunday Independent. Yeah, that's right. I, I might just come back on the on the, uh, on the the enterprise sure, piece yeah. if, that, if that's okay before I move on to that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's really reflective of the earlier discussion we had around the different government departments being you know segregated and mm. you know, Radker's leaving enterprise and he's obviously setting out a stall as he leaves. This is what we've achieved. We've got this great white paper. It's going to drive continued investment and obviously it's been a massive success for the Irish economy is the, is the foreign investment in, in, in Ireland. But I think it goes back to what's the other issues impacting workers who actually can't and I think it's going to affect foreign investment as uh, lack of housing like mm-hmm. so your your teacher your your, your ordinary worker mid, middle income low income middle income um, guards except nurse they, they can't afford to live in Dublin anymore um, and if you're lucky you might have had a good landlord you're holding on you're holding on to the lease you know hoping that's going to be renewed every year every year I mean, I think it's a massive issue that's going to affect foreign investment into the country. And we can't, and it goes back to the heart of why we have teacher shortages yeah. in places like Dublin, is that teachers can't afford to live here anymore, particularly in the early parts of their career. If they were lucky enough to get onto the housing market during the crash or someone has helped them or a parent has helped them, that's all well and good. But there's a whole generation of people that can't afford to live mm. in our cities at this point in time because the government has not got control of the housing crisis and the housing market. 
with I mean the, you read out the front page um, of the business post uh, uh, Gavin earlier yeah. on and picking up about the apartments it, approvals for 28,000 apartments mm. in, in a three year period and only 5,000 apartments actually constructed I mean, Yeah, well, I, I think it might be 5,000 per year but either, either way there's definitely a massive deficit between the numbers that are granted and the numbers that are yeah. actually happening which suggests yeah. that there is some incentive for yeah, people to yeah. sit on what they've got yeah, yeah. yeah. so going back then to the, the, the teacher shortage and I suppose there, there was a scheme in place and it was the, the government was hoping the Department of Education was hoping that schools would share teachers you know supply teachers yeah. but one of the reasons why they, they think that many principals didn't want to opt into it was they were afraid to lose their staff so if you go you teach in another school for a temporary period oh maybe the grass is greener yeah. you're going to you're going to lose your teacher uh, for that reason and that's why I think they're looking at a potential task force uh, to address this issue but I think yeah, there's bigger issues why we've got teacher shortages um, that have to be looked at I know they have done an advertising campaign they said in the, uh, 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 that they spent 163,000 trying to entice people to apply uh, to, to be educated to be a teacher and it did reduce in a uh, it was like a 17% bump in the numbers of people applying in that year mm. to be a teacher I think what you're seeing here is you know this should have happened probably 10 years ago you know because the Department of Education is sitting on the data anyway always in terms of numbers of children where they are where the teacher supply yeah. needs to be well, this, this is why I, I'm just a little bit baffled as to how you ultimately get such a chronic shortage of teachers because if the state knows how many children are born in any given year surely it's, it's pretty easy to model what the demands for teachers based on certain people's teacher ratios are going to be for the coming years well, and, therefore all, you, yeah. and you know how many graduates you need to produce so one presumes or maybe I'm being naive here one presumes we're doing that but we just can't make it worthwhile for those new graduates to stay because yeah. we, they just can't afford to live in the country I'd say probably their challenge with the, with the kind of modelling they do is they have all the data it's, you know, it's pretty sophisticated what they do mm. is they still get situations where uh, there's oversupply or undersupply and they haven't put the measures in place to deal with those kind of issues yeah. I think that's possibly one of the one of the challenges here but I mean there's a lot of Irish people qualified Irish people in other countries particularly the UK there's a potential supply of people that they need to attract over find ways to attract them over here to work here um, there's also I think talking in the article as well is that it takes too long to register a qualified teacher from another country as well through the teaching council and that needs to be sped up as mm. well because this is a crisis that children and young people are actually experiencing on the front line because uh, the teachers aren't there Mrs Riley is at home uh, saying the words migrant teacher programme uh, at the radio right now and I would be killed if I went home and didn't uh, say those words. There is are some projects going on in some institutions, like for example, yeah. Marino, where they do a program of trying to help people convert their overseas teaching qualifications yeah. by giving them whatever extra modules they need, competence in Irish, for example, to be able to teach uh, in the Irish system, which is something that, that does work uh, pretty well. Uh, I do need to go to a break, but Vincent has texted in. Good morning to you, Vincent, uh, who wants to know why the, uh, the media never writes about the inefficiencies in the civil service and how they themselves can be a barrier to progress on major social issues. I suspect the answer is because people in the media like me don't know much about the civil service. We, d- we don't see them. We don't interface with them. We, we see politicians. We see them being held to account in the dull chamber. But we don't see assistant principals and secretaries general very often. So we, we don't know much about what the, the blockages are on the ground. Does that sound fair to you, Kevin? Um, I'm not sure if that's the case. I mean, there's a, a fair bit of exposure through the parliamentary system. But, you know, under our legislation under um, 
yeah. way we operate. The you know, they're, and they're, Act, the yeah. ministers and secretaries act. They're very clear. Uh, differentiation of roles. That's why I kind of chose my words carefully earlier. I think we mm. need to we need to liberate our senior officials to feel that they can have a more proactive and progressive role in in, mm. in, in matters. Just before we leave the teacher, yeah. teachers Reach issue, can, yeah. um, like we we shouldn't uh, like the the bulge, as you correctly say. You know, the bulge at the moment is at uh, post primary level. But let's be very clear: there are significant issues in terms of the precarity of contracts for a lot of teachers at second and third level. Yes. And we've mm. come through a period where um, through the various measures that were taken on the back of the financial crisis, mm. you know, the perception and the reality was, you know, that employment wa- in teaching wasn't as attractive as it had been. And mm. and that that's an important thing yeah. to, to grapple with. Uh, I do need to take a break. More coming from Tanya and Kevin after this. 11.50 this morning and on the record. Uh, today on News Talk, we want to remind you that you have to give the choice to go anywhere this Christmas with the Go Anywhere gift card from Ireland Hotels with hundreds of unique hotel and guest house properties to choose from. And to mark that, we are giving you the chance to stay at the stunning four-star Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel where you'll enjoy dinner at Mapas Restaurant which celebrates the best of Irish locally sourced seasonal produce. For more information, see IrelandHotels.com. So we are giving you a two-night B&B stay in Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel with dinner on one evening in Mapas Restaurant and a Prosecco afternoon tea. And all you have to do is just text the word STAY and your name to us right now on 53106. That is 53106. Costs are 30 cent and we will give you that prize before the end of the programme. A two-night B&B stay in Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel dinner on one evening in Mappas Restaurant and Prosecco afternoon tea. STAY and your name to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. Um, Kevin Callan and Tangy Ward are still with me in studio. Um, there's a couple of other bits and pieces that we have a couple of minutes that we want to get through uh, in the papers uh, and an interesting piece on page four I think it is of the Sun Independent Tanya where um, in light of some of the uh, more recent allegations that have been raised about the Spiritans Order and um, some untoward events in Blackrock College. The Law Reform Commission asking the public on whether the law should be changed so that religious bodies might be directly sued by people who've been the victims of abuse. Yeah. And and to, and, and to be honest, Gavin, I don't know if I understood the article. <laughs> I read through it. It seems to be saying uh, two different things to me. I mean, we're obviously back here again where, and, and this is my, my own frustration as a, as a children's rights campaigner mm. dealing with their historical legacy. We're, we're here again. We still haven't dealt with this. Even if you were to look like within the Department of Children, how many people are still focused on historical legacy pieces? So I get very frustrated when we just, we're still this, this outstanding stuff that we haven't dealt with around their historical uh, legacy. But the article seems to be pinpoint Law Reform Commission is going out to the public, going to ask them about their views around reforming the laws at the moment, uh, protecting uh, or yeah, non-incorporated bodies really from, from, from being sued. So there was a case from 2017 um, that provided that uh, it was members of the Marist Order uh, mm. that all members of that community could be sued. And I suppose what the, it seems to me is the Law Reform Commission is, is looking at is, well, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with organisations who generally they're not incorporated, they're not legal companies, so you can't sue them. So how do you sue them? You have to sue them yeah. as a whole movement and that, that's how you have mm. to do it. But if you're um, a member of that movement, then you can't sue them because you might be vicariously suing yourself, which is that, a bit that, of a legal and that, quandary. That, that, yeah. And that's one of the quandaries. And the other issue, I suppose, with this, and this is there's probably a broader issue here is this can affect sports clubs, community clubs, you know, people have a right to associate. Um, and so if people can sue each other, um, what impact is it going to have 
And alongside that, though, are major issues in our society with how we deal with safety Mm. and protection as well. So you need to come up with some solution that uh, ensures that organisations can be held accountable for failure to protect children and others within their community. But at the same same time, it has to be workable and allow the community to to, to operate. Um, But I do think whatever does come out of this is we do need to find a situation where those historic um, those orders need to be held Mm. accountable, potentially financially. Uh, for what happens in their orders. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think it's just remarkable, Kevin, that, that the, we, we've dealt with um, institutional abuse and abuse by members of religious orders for so long and yet there would still seem to be so many different legal lacunas and loopholes about how exactly you might go and seek redress from them. And I think what, what really is remarkable, just the cases that are coming forward even now all the time, like, uh, like, like probably most people of my generation, I, I went to a school that was it wasn't a fee paying school, but it was a you know a religious secondary school, and we all knew in the seventies that there was a priest there who was you know not behaving appropriately. Shall I put it like that? That it was I, an open secret. It was, an, not even it was secret. an open secret. But I suppose what I don't know is just how many people really fell victim to that. I've no doubt there were victims, and you know I'm sure that was an experience that was typical of many, many people, the vast majority probably of people in my generation, uh, and just the number of people who ended up abused by uh, people like that, I suppose, is is something that we're still seeing um, people coming forward. That That's what we saw with the Spurton's case. And I, like it really is way past time that mm. we came up with arrangements to ensure that this issue is... Uh, well, how do you deal with it? But it's yeah. dealt with in the best way we can as a society. Um, one other piece that I was uh, tickled by, and I want to finish on this one, page uh, 15 of the Sunday Independent, Mark Tig reporting that a British privacy expert is suing LinkedIn in Ireland because he claims that its artificial intelligence security system has defamed him. That um, Alexander Hanf is a, an expert in security, privacy and data protection, but LinkedIn's algorithm continually marks his messages to other people as potentially being spam or harassment, uh, presumably because he's fallen foul of some algorithm Algorithm, but because that's his own line of work, Tanya, that he reckons he's actually been defamed, and he may have he is suing now because he's been defamed not by a person but by some computer system, which yeah. is pretty remarkable. It's pretty, it's fascinating, really, because could the future, I suppose, of how these platforms are going to be controlled, and to some degree, it is all run by algorithms and, and AI at the moment. That's really the direction of travel because regulation is really coming down hard from mm. uh, from the European Commission, uh, particularly when it comes to online safety and, and data protection. Um, and it's very costly to involve people in doing these kind of exercises. So they were leaning definitely towards the AIs to, for, for, for this particular activity. So I think this will be really interesting to see what the outcome uh, of it is. Um, they, I, I know already that the tech community would be well aware of the dangers of AI in, in these kind of activities. Mm. Uh, even when they put together the GDPR, which deals with privacy at the EU level uh, and, and in other countries, they even included some protections around um, uh, if you were, let's say, applying for bank loans and mortgages that they couldn't rely on AIs to determine whether you should get access to them or not. I mean, they're well aware of the limitations of what they have in place I think this this case and because he's a, he's a privacy campaigner as well he, he obviously knows the law as well uh, I think it's going to be really illustrative of, of, of what the dangers of AI are um, and I'm, I'm really looking mm. forward to seeing what the outcome of it is I've just asked that open AI chatbot is Gavin Riley any good and if it gives me a libelous answer I'll broadcast it to you at 12 o'clock and then I can go and sue the station which would be a great little lacuna in its own right um, <laughs> Kevin Callan and Tanya Ward thanks very much for coming in to talk about the Sunday Papers 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.